way below the poverty line. 80% of families who have child welfare involvement, I believe that's the correct number, live 200% below the poverty line. So our caseworkers are often not um, equipped by the state with what they need to address poverty. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I can't even speak today. Uh, so my, I have as my guest, um, who has been very patient as we work through our tech. This may or may not work today. Um, and I'm probably going to butcher her name, and I hope she forgives me. Sarah Winograd Babuski. Is that close, Sarah? Probably not. That, that is very good, very good. But still not quite right, I'm sure. So Sarah and I, um, it, it, go ahead. I said it will work. It will work. It will work fine for today. <laughs> so Sarah and I met on LinkedIn. So Sarah, you post a lot on LinkedIn and probably every day. And you always have something very thoughtful to say about kids in care, kids in foster care, which is, of course, one of my passion areas. Definitely where you, um, a passion area for you, where you spend your whole, you know, life, at least the life now, the life that you have now. And so that's how we first connected. Yes, yes. And thank you for connecting. Um, I, I appreciate that connection. I'm obviously very passionate about the work that we do to help keep families together and um, to prevent unnecessary foster care. So that is definitely something you and I have in common. And I wanna dig right into that conversation. Hopefully our tech is gonna hold up today. But before we get into all that, would you please introduce yourself to my audience and tell us how you came to be who you are? Yeah, so just a little bit about myself. My dad was a social worker, then a pastor, and we were missionaries overseas in Belarus. So we worked a lot um, with families, and I grew up amongst families experiencing poverty, the post-Soviet era, and um, worked a lot with or um, children who were orphaned and came back to the United States with my husband, who had finished medical school in Belarus and um, was studying English and studying for the United States medical licensing exam here. So he's a physician now at Kennestone Hospital and I um, graduated, I started my degree at the University of Georgia and graduated from KSU and studied psychology. And ever since then, I've worked as a professional volunteer in the community, working with youth experiencing homelessness, working with um, children at Devereaux. I started a program at Devereaux to get more, um, to provide a little bit of assistance to the youth um, from K KSU students who were coming in and they were providing some tutoring and help. And we worked to kind of fill in the gaps when a lot of the residential treatment centers were losing a lot of the state funding. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about my story. Then I started as a CASA and we started the program that we're gonna talk about today together for families. That is 
so amazing. And you know what uh, is always interesting to me is how uh, if we talk to people longer than five minutes, we find a connection. Do you know when I first moved to Atlanta, I worked at Devereaux? Wow, what year was that? Oh gosh, way, way back, like probably 1985, something like that. Yeah, now I'm really dating myself. Okay. Yeah, back in my clinical days. Now you just dated yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. that was two years, I was two years old. Oh God, love you. Did you have to say that out loud? Lord have mercy. Yeah, because I wanted to be a clinician. I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I wanted to like help people uh and um got anyway long story short got really burnt out, out on that and decided prevention is where i want to be and which is another thing you and i have in common so let's talk about together for families and uh now you're housed under advocates for children because i love speaking to community leaders especially grassroots community leaders so tell me how this dream that you had, this work that you had has grown into this organization that you have created. Yeah, so like I said, you know, I had a lot of experience living amongst families who were experiencing poverty and working with youth who were homeless in Atlanta when I came back to the States. And so I never equated poverty with somebody's worth or their capacity to parent. Poverty was just something that, you know, some um, families and people struggled with, but it had nothing to do with their worth or their capacity to take care of their children or whether they were loving or caring or hardworking. Um, those were never equations I had made. So I started volunteering as a court appointed special advocate in the Cobb County Juvenile Court. And a court appointed special advocate advocates for children. They're a volunteers and meets the children and meets everybody involved in a dependency case and works to try to uh, be the voice for the children and provide evidence to the judge so the judge can make a decision for the child, you know, whatever's in the child's best interest. And I was shocked to learn that there's so many children who are being separated from their parents for issues that could be resolved uh, with resources. And it started for me when I had my first case and I went to meet the first child that I was supposed to advocate for and I took the job very seriously. And I asked him and I, to I told him first, I'm your court appointed special advocate. I'm here to advocate for you and tell the judge what you want. And I asked him, I said, what do you want? And he looked at me and he said, I want to go home. And for me, that was just a gut punch. I knew already reading his case file, he had been moved five times. He was separated from his brothers. His family struggled with poverty. And so I asked him, I said, well, tell me about your family. And he spoke about his family with so much love and he could tell he just missed his family. He would get, write on his arm the names of his brothers and his mother and he was suffering. There was a wound that we had created in this child by separating him from his parents and his family and his mom who he worried about and loved. And that when I, when I saw that, I thought about him 
and I remembered the children and youth who were homeless on the streets in Atlanta, and I remember their stories, and they told me how they had entered foster care, and they had been separated from their families, and their families struggled also, and they had experienced poverty and abuse or neglect in their families, yet they loved their families, and I saw how the foster care system didn't provide them with any relief, but just made actually the situation even harder. And so for him, I just imagine this kid moved around five times and if he didn't go home, I didn't see much hope for him. And so I knew that the only way to cure his heart and what was hurting inside of him was to help him reunite. And so um, that was my first experience. And I reached out to his mom and became friends really with the family and saw how beautiful this family was even in their struggles and that if I had caught these children earlier before in foster care while they had a case with defects in child welfare while they were still under family preservation and living with their mom and being investigated if I had caught them then we could have prevented foster care and so that's when the dream birthed inside of me to one day which I didn't think it happened this soon start a program to prevent this kind of trauma. So Sarah, you use the word um, family preservation. So for those of us, uh, the audience members rather who are listening and they don't know what that is, they don't know the child welfare language, what does that mean? Or what stage is that? So, sure, so let's just say a school teacher notices a child who's hungry and who doesn't have have appropriate clothing and school teacher reaches out to mom and says, hey, you know, um, let me help you with these kind of things. And mom seems to really struggle. Maybe she's struggling and the kid just disappears and doesn't come to school for a long period of time. And so, um, or they find out the, the child's living in their car with their parents. So the social worker might call as a mandated reporter call um, child Protective Services. And Child Protective Services can choose to go out and investigate if they think the matter is serious enough. And they'll investigate and they'll decide whether child abuse and neglect is substantiated or not substantiated. And if it is substantiated, then they really have two choices. Either they remove the children right there and then and put the children into foster care and separate them from their parents, um, or they can remove the children and put them with a relative if they can find one. Um, but the removal is one choice. And the other choice is to leave the children in the home and create a plan, kind of a safety plan with the parent of you have to do this, this, and this, and this, and um, you get to keep your kids. So it could be you need to find housing. You need to make sure your kids are fed. You need to do counseling. You need to do this parenting class and give them a list of things that they need to do. And they can transfer them from CPS, from child, from the investigative phase to family preservation, where they can get all of these different services. And the services that the state provides are counseling, parenting classes, and um, help for substance use. And so all of these families, most of these families are living um, way below the poverty line. 80% of families who have child welfare involvement, I believe that's the correct number, live 200% below the poverty line. So our caseworkers are often not um, 
equipped by the state with what they need to address poverty. Yeah, so you went exactly where I wanted to go to next, uh, because I think most people, uh, I don't I don't think this is incorrect, most people assume that uh, parents who have their children taken away from them, uh, that they're taken away because of abuse. And what I hear you saying is that's actually not true. No, and that was shocking for me. Uh, as a court-appointed special advocate, I actually thought also, like most people, that children who were in foster care or children who were orphans were orphans or in foster care because their parents either abandoned them and didn't want them, or their parents were um, psychopaths that you might see on the news when, when um, you know, there's this crazy story of some psychopath parent who is horribly abusive. So I thought we were dealing with parents who were horribly abusive or parents who didn't want their kids. And the reality is in Cobb County where I live, 20, so from April of um, last year to March of this year, 23% of removals into foster care were due to neglect. And that is inability of the parents to provide food, shelter, housing, you know, or basic needs for the children or emotional um, needs of the children. And then we had um, another 12% uh, removed for inadequate housing. So maybe they were homeless or they didn't have their utilities on and these were poverty issues. And actually, the smallest um, percentage was uh, for, you know, physical and sexual abuse together were 12% of the cases of foster care. So most, most cases of foster care, what you're really going to see is not an abusive parent who is uh, harming their child intentionally. Most of the cases of foster care, you're going to see a struggling parent, and as a consequence of their struggle, poverty, depression, and anxiety, um, all mixed together as a con or substance use as a way to cope with sometimes mental health issues, all mixed together, causing um, a child to experience neglect. So you talk for a minute about the support that the state has to offer, and you talked about substance abuse treatment, for example, which, hey, I'm, I have a mental health background. So I'm all for mental health. I'm all for substance abuse treatment. Recovery is a beautiful thing. It, it is a possibility. But I didn't hear anything in the list of supports, anything that really addressed poverty, right? If we just looked at the cost of housing, yeah. and how housing costs have increased exponentially over the last couple of years, I mean, did I did I mishear you? I didn't hear anything in that in that list of supports, anything dealing with poverty. Yeah, it's actually very, very um, um, disconcerting and and it's extremely sad to see what's going on. And essentially what has happened is our policymakers have not equipped our case managers who are on the ground, oftentimes making very little money. Um, I think they start out at like $40,000 a year, our case managers. So they're on the ground doing an extremely difficult and emotionally draining job. 
they have an incredible task of protecting children and also strengthening families and trying to keep these families together. But we're dealing with families who are predominantly living way below the poverty line and they don't have any tools to deal with poverty. And so what they do have is the community. And unfortunately, those resources in the community are often tapped out with every other person struggling with poverty who might not have a child welfare case, but who's struggling with poverty, you know, uh, looking to these resources to get supplies. So our case managers might spend are really amazing, hardworking case managers might spend 50% of their time just trying to find housing for a family that's homeless or just trying to find resources for transportation or just trying to find food for a child who is hungry. They are spending an enormous amount of time looking in the community and searching the community and begging for help from the community because our state does not equip them with the resources they need to address poverty. Right. And and I will be the first one to admit that our caseworkers get a really bad rap. Oh yeah, and I can tell you that working in family with case managers who have family preservation cases, they work extraordinarily hard in Cobb County to keep families together. They run to shelters begging to take their children into the shelter so that the children don't have to be removed into foster care. They go to rehabs begging to get families in with their children so the family doesn't have to be separated. They go around begging for somebody to help provide transportation so mom can take the child mm -hmm. to the doctor so they don't have to be reported for neglect. Our case managers are given an impossible task. They cannot do their job the way that the state has, um, you know, funneled the money in the way that mm -hmm. without the community, they can't yeah. do their job without the community. And that's, that's where we step in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more um, in a minute about what Together uh, for Families does, and maybe what, how we could structure our systems a little bit better. But can you talk um, some about the risks to children who are placed in care. You touched on it a little bit, and I know this from my um, my work in communities and my evaluation work, certainly um, about the number of uh, placements that kids uh, often have. And of course, the more trauma there has been, the more likely they are to disrupt placements. Uh, but I know you're on the ground much more than I am. Can you speak to the risks that children have when they are placed in foster care? Yeah, first you have the initial separation from your parents, and that is an extraordinarily traumatic event, being separated from your parents. Many children think that they're being kidnapped. Somebody comes in and they just take them from their parents. Their parents might be yelling or crying or begging to give their children back. Parents don't know where their children are when they're taken, oftentimes. And the kids can't contact their parents oftentimes, and they don't know when they're going to see their parent again. There's an incredible amount of grief, and the American um, Society of Pediatrics talks about the lifelong consequences of child-family separation. So what you see is these children who have been under extraordinary stress living in poverty, 
coming into foster care, experiencing the stress of losing a parent or parents and family they love. I believe right now, one third of the children who have siblings in foster care are separated from their siblings. So they don't only lose their parents, their grandparents, their neighbors, their friends, their dog, their cat, and are placed with a stranger, they lose everything. The loss is incredible. It's like the rug is swept out from underneath them. So according to JAMA Pediatrics, children in foster care are 42% more likely to die than children in the general population. 80% of sex trafficking victims, I believe now, you know, have um, experienced foster care and many are coming from the foster care system. We have 20,000 children or more in the US that age out of foster care. And studies have pointed to the fact that many children who are left even in marginal homes um, do better than our children who are raised in our foster care system. Mm -hmm. Children are over-medicated. Many are under-loved. So love is not a requirement to um, being a foster parent. You don't have to love the children. And we often think of foster parents as uh, these very altruistic people, and many of them are. Foster parenting is a calling. And there's many people that do it as a calling, and there's other people that do it for other reasons. And the children experience um, neglect in in foster can can experience neglect and abuse in foster care as well. So the results we have children who leave foster care and they struggle in all areas: education, employment, income, housing, health, substance use, criminal involvement, compared to their peers in the general population. So about 20% of youth transitioning out of foster care are immediately homeless. Nearly 50% are homeless within 18 months. And the very troubling also, if we, um, is nearly 70% of girls who age out of foster care are pregnant by the age of 21. And mm. let me tell you, when I talk to a lot of our parents, many of them have experienced foster care. These are the same children. Yeah. So, if we look at this data, Anne, and we look at the results, we see that our government is a terrible substitution for family and a parent, and they are responsible for over 400,000 children in the United States. Yeah, and that kind of gets to the next place I wanted to go to is kind of the, the what ha what happens to the mom and dad, the trauma that the mom and dads, and what you're saying is uh, our children, some of our children, not all, but some of our children who experience foster care go on to have children who are then in foster care. And when I think back to my clinical days and my, you know, my family systems theory, it's that trauma is just being passed on from one generation to another. Yeah, I would say at least half of our parents um, have experienced our foster care system. We have parents who have aged out of foster care, and every single one of our parents have experienced child abuse and neglect. So we're dealing with the same population, only the parents who are grown up and really never got the help that they needed from um, the system or the community. So maybe now is a good place to talk about Together for Families and what what you all try to do to, you know, to support these families to do what you can. Yeah. So Together for Families, it started with that dream of catching families before the trauma of family separation. So a family is in crisis, but instead of making the crisis worse by removing children and families seeing that additional trauma, and then um, having to go through all the trauma of, of, of that prolonged separation, 
we come in and when the family is still intact, we'll work with the parents to fill in the gaps and address the poverty related needs of the family. So we have a resource center here in Cobb County and families can come after referral from the Division of Family Children's Services or from the juvenile court, they can come and they can get supplies from our resource center quarterly. So every three months or the changing of each season for up to 12 months. So while they're in crisis, while they're doing the hard work to get better or do better, they can come get these resources so that their children have their basic needs met while their parents are climbing their way out of poverty or climbing their way out of a domestic violence situation or trying to get better from a mental health issue. Um, we don't want their children to experience neglect. So we have diapers, wipes, baby supplies. We have beds, new mattresses for children and new beds, bunk beds, um, toddler beds. And we'll also work with the community to connect our families with resources for food and housing and whatever they need to address the poverty related needs of the family. And what we see is when we wrap around these families and these parents with unconditional love and, and saying, you know, we're not gonna define you by your worst mistake and we're not gonna define you by your child welfare involvement. We're going to help you right where you're at and we're going to help you get to where you wanna be. And we see that the families do extraordinarily well and that many of these families um, go on to go and help other families. So families who you know, were a part of our grassroots effort when we were just helping them, and we can go back to that because I don't know if I really shared much about that, but um, they have come back and they volunteer and they help us um, in our resource center. So if families don't have transportation, we remove all the barriers, we'll, we'll deliver supplies right into their home. Yeah, awesome. And yeah, anything you want to share about how Together for Families like came to be and maybe how you came to be housed at Advocates for Children? And because I think you used to be in your basement. Yeah, Is that correct. <laughs> My yeah, it, and it started in the basement in one room, and then it started seeping into, I would gather resources from neighbors and friends, so it started in the basement in one room, and then it started seeping into other rooms in the basement, and then it started seeping upstairs, all these things, cribs, mattresses, beds, um, supplies for families, and my husband told me um, I think it's time that you that you get a storage or something else. So um, it really started the moment I was at CASA and I realized that children were being separated from their families for underlying issues of poverty. And, and like I told you with that initial case that I had, I was completely heartbroken. And then I was even more heartbroken when I started reading the data and started reading um, reports that were out there you know, um, pointing to the fact that so many children, not just in Cobb County, but all over the United States were experiencing the hardship of family separation unnecessarily. So my dream of starting a program, I was really lucky. It was also Chelsea Griffith's dream. She's a guardian ad litem attorney in the Cobb County Juvenile Court. So we started working together. I told her just give any family with child welfare involvement who is working hard, um, to do whatever they need to, who's struggling with poverty, give them my cell number and I'll meet with them and help them find resources in the community. And if I can't, I'll just ask my friends and neighbors for help. I live in an upper middle-class neighborhood. And I said, you know, I'll just reach out to my friends and neighbors and we'll just fill those needs. And so really one by one, families started calling and saying, you know, hi, Chelsea told me 
I could call you and you would help me find resources for housing and utilities and car repairs and beds and diapers and food and clothes and transportation and all of these kind of things that these families were struggling with and felt like they kept hitting barriers and um, they were really hopeless in trying to address. So we got to work connecting families with community nonprofits and neighbors and friends started filling the need one by one. I had neighbors going out in their cars, delivering items. Neighbors were giving um, money. Then one day, one of my neighbors gave me $10,000 and said, hey, this is for future needs. And that's where the idea of having an emergency fund came in. I called Chelsea Griffith and I said, we just got $10,000. <laughs> we have an emergency fund. And we kind of sparked the idea that we needed to find um, a nonprofit that would allow us to establish a program there so that we could really scale this. So I reached out to my friend, Kat Ganowski, Catherine Ganowski in the Cobb Community Foundation. Actually, she's the one who told me about CASA in the beginning. And I said, what do we do? There's all these families that need our help and we wanna have um, a program or a nonprofit and how do we do it and what are we supposed to do? And she said to me, don't start a nonprofit, just go find a nonprofit with the same heart as you have and, um, and connect with them. So we started looking for a nonprofit with the same heart that would allow us to build this program and scale it and help and allow me to manage it. And uh, my dear friend, Kaylin Mayhew, she loved this idea of being able to launch a program inside a nonprofit and she offered us seed money to do that. And I really loved um, when I spoke with Rachel Castilla, who's the executive director of Advocates for Children, I really loved her heart and she understood the intersection of child welfare and poverty because she had served um, families in the Salvation Army and in other poverty serving agencies. And then she, um, at Advocates for Children, they work with families who um, and children who have experienced abuse or neglect or through the child welfare agency. So I, um, we connected, all of us connected together and we decided just in November of last year that we were going to launch this program officially from Advocates for Children called Together for Families. Kaylin was providing the seed money. And since then, I mean, we've had over a hundred friends and neighbors donate um, to this program and dozens of families and friends who have volunteered. And since we launched officially on May 2nd, we have um, now 32 families that we're serving and close to a hundred children. So what, Sarah, I'm curious as to how long it took you from uh, building all these resources in your basement to last May. Sure. So I started, it started in my basement about um, three years ago, and it just kept growing and um, started working with Chelsea Griffith uh, about two years ago, where she was sending more and more families to me. And then... Um, so two years ago, about two years ago, started working with Chelsea, where it was, uh, it was, we started creating this program together. And then just um, this past November, had the seed money and launched, you know, just in May. So it's um, close to now going on, oh my gosh, almost three years, I mean, that we've been um, doing this. But before that, you know, I was serving other families with my neighbors 
who were living in poverty when I was volunteering at, at the Atlanta Dream Center. So my neighbors had been serving many, many families from my basement, um, not just families with child welfare involvement, even before this program started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I I love your story because I really think it speaks to what one person can do because it's very easy to just look at the news and get really depressed or look at the news and turn off the news. Um, so I, I love I love that story and I love that you saw a need and you took action. You know, and I think it's, the amazing thing is, is it's not just one person. I think there just requires one person to champion an issue, and then it requires dozens of people to respond. And so I would be out there with mattresses hanging out of my minivan and serving one family at a time. Um, but if it wasn't for the community caring about this issue, if it wasn't for Chelsea Griffith taking a risk on this ambitious, you know, mom who was this volunteer as a CASA and allowing her access in and counseling her and giving her really the um, the connection in the juvenile court, then um, this program wouldn't be. So it takes, I think, one person amplifying an issue, and then it takes a village to fill the need. And mm-hmm. that's really what we saw. So do you know how many families you've touched at this point? Do you have any? Oh, idea? yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so we have 32 officially in the program at Advocates for Children in the Together for Families program. And previously before that, touched at least 50 families um, in one capacity or another. So how do how do these mom and dads react when you um, when they get connected with you? I imagine there might even be, a, you know, a trust issue. It's probably not even their first time you know, where somebody has said, hey, you're, you're not doing a good job and that kind of thing. So how do, how do you approach them and how do they react? Well, I approach them and I say, you are doing a good job. You're doing your best and we can help. And so, um, and that you're loved and it's okay. And no matter, I don't need to know anything that you've done or anything that's happened. We're going to meet you right here and there's solutions to every problem and we can help you. Mm-hmm. And so let us know what you need so we can help you. And I think it's because we don't judge them. None of us want to be defined by our worst mistakes. None of us want to be defined for where we're at in a specific bad circumstance, but seeing the potential in every single family and seeing where they can be and not where they're at and so my goal and, and my, the hardest job that I have is not providing basic needs to families or providing financial assistance. The hardest job I have is for families to believe in themselves and to have the belief and to love themselves again and for parents to forgive and love themselves because it's really, really hard to love your children and love others if you really don't love yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed, 100%. None of us want to be remembered or judged by the worst mistake we've ever made or the worst low we have ever had in our life. I can hear your I can hear your parents uh, bringing in you. <laughs> that missionary work comes through. They must be really proud of you. So I, I have yeah, a... Yeah, well, this... Go ahead. Yeah, this is... Um, for sure. My parents are really proud and they're big supporters. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I, you were talking about, uh, it's, uh, all the support you had from your, your friends and your neighbors. Cause when you gave me that, uh, video tour a few weeks ago, you were so excited <laughs> showing me all the things on the wall, but I met a couple of your neighbors who are there sorting clothes, all those kinds of, Oh, that, that remind this will be a good place to like, how can people help the organization get involved? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you asked because we need the more help we get, the more families we can serve. So I made a choice. We had the seed money, but I told Rachel Casilla, the ED of Advocates for Children, I said, I want to volunteer my time. And I also um, donate to the program because I want more money to go to the program um, to actual families. And so how people can get involved, they can donate financially. So they can go on Advocates for Children. Uh, advochild.org and they can click on together for families and if you click on our link in our webpage for together for families you can see um, uh, there's a donate button and it'll go directly to our program and there's a wish list where you can buy items for our resource center that we give directly back to families who are in crisis and at risk of losing their children to foster care. And then there's a printable wish list where you could print it off and go around your house and see if you have any gently used clothes or anything that's on our wish list because we don't sell anything. Everything you donate um, will go right back to a family that's in need in crisis right here in our community. And so that's one of the... Um, that's one of the easy ways, or people can also volunteer in our resource center. They can help us sort clothes or stock up. If somebody is interested in working with our families, they do have to go through the background checks and all of the training, but there is that opportunity as well for you know individuals. And Anne, I wanted to mention something that I didn't mention before. Together for families, we don't only serve the parents who have child welfare involvement, who are struggling with poverty so that they the kids can stay in the home. We'll also serve the relatives when poverty is a barrier for the uh, to making a placement of a child in the home of a family member or maintaining a placement. So we serve the grandmas and the grandpas who are struggling with poverty, who love their grandchildren when their parents can't take care of them. So we're all about keeping children with the people that they love and the people that love them because that's where children thrive. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. And I'll be sure and put all of those links uh, in the show notes as well so people can connect. Uh, you know, I'm a community psychologist, so I'm always thinking about systems level change. And I got to ask you one more question before we close. And when I think about, um, you know, what can policymakers, what can the state do better that we're not doing now to keep families together. And the reason why I ask this is because um, years ago when I was evaluating uh, 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 the capacity building project, I talked about that in my interview with uh, Michael Waller at Georgia Appleseed, and I'll link that episode as well. Uh, we Even back then when I evaluated that program, we had kids uh, in foster care who were spending the night in hotel rooms. And just the other day, the AJC had an article about kids spending the night in defects offices or in hotel rooms or in group homes. So what, what can policymakers do better and what, um, do, you know, and what, what do voters need to be aware of, right? Because we elect these policymakers. So what, what's, I guess what, that's a long-winded way of saying systems level, what do we need to do better? Sure. And that's a great question. And it's a loaded question. So the easy answer is going to be 
Um, obviously, the child welfare system in the United States um, is, is a dysfunctional, in crisis mess. So that, obviously, there's a lot of things that we can do there to fix it. But one of the things that they can do right now, really easily, is prevent unnecessary foster care removal. So stop the influx of children into the system. Most of the children who are in foster care have family. Most of the children have a living parent or other family. We need to keep children with their family. And the only way we're going to do that successfully is if we provide economic and concrete support to families. So if our policymakers are sending our frontline workers into the homes of very, very, very poor families, and they're not providing them with any resources for economic and concrete support, they are failing the families, they are failing the case managers, and we're setting up everybody for failure. We're setting the fa families up for failure and we're setting the case managers. And what happens is we're gonna spend all of this money on the back end, taking these children into foster care, because I was told that it costs 32,000 to $40,000 a year to keep one child in foster care. We can prevent foster care at Together for Families for less than $2,000 for a whole family, three children, four children. So it is much cheaper to prevent foster care. Mm -hmm. And many, many, many of these families that are interacting with child welfare, foster care can be prevented if they had economic and concrete mm -hmm. support. So they can, and the easy thing for our Georgia legislators, they can support us or they can provide that to the case managers on hand. Right. But um, if they're not doing that, they're setting everybody up for failure. They're setting the children up for heartache and failure. And um, that's one easy way. And then on a systems, on a systems level, when you talk about our foster care system, if we stop the influx of children into the system unnecessarily, and we won't have a system that is so in crisis that case managers have unbelievable caseloads that they can't manage. We won't have so many um, um, children sleeping in hotels because they can't have find foster parents. So we can actually give the system a little bit of breathing room to actually do the job that they're supposed to do. So right now, everybody seems like they're on fire. Everyone's on fire because the system's overloaded. So at the very least, let's stop the inflow who are entering foster care who don't need to be there. Yeah. And you know, what wasn't even in that, uh, that calculation was the cost down the road, the cost uh, yes. of uh, kids who are on the street, people who are homeless, people who end up in, in jail, people who don't have, uh, you know, good educational outcomes, therefore are not, you know, uh, don't have uh, great jobs in the community, all those, just all, all the things that perpetuate from that experience. Yes, and perpetuate for the children, but not just for the children. So the cost for the children being in foster care and then the, the consequences that follow mm -hmm. for the children, but then the cost for the parents. So they still exist. You took the children, you're paying for these children to be in foster care and their parents still exist. And their parents are out there crushed and we crushed, their mental health is crushed. And if they never get their children back, well, maybe they're going to have more children to replace that place inside of them that is broken. And if we did not fix and help their parents, then we are just perpetuating this cycle. Right. So more children come, the parents have more children, parents never got help. We take more children into the system. It's just a terrible way to deal with a family that is struggling, but mm -hmm. loving. It's a way to deal with a 
family that is severely abusing their children, but not a family that loves their children and who's doing the best they can, but struggling to get mental health services, Mm -hmm. struggling to get substance abuse help, struggling to um, feed and house their children, just a terrible way to deal with them. Right. And, and sooner or later, we all pay for that. Yes. In lots of different ways. So on that very positive note, I have to ask you my last question, which is uh, when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see, Sarah? I see the community being aware that our, our um, the Division of Family Children's Services can't serve these families and keep children out of foster care without us. And so we want to wrap around these families in a in a much bigger way. We want to serve every single family in Cobb County and in Bartow County that has a child welfare case. So we want a resource center where community members can come in and serve and help our families. We want to be able to serve every family under family preservation. We want to be able to serve every family who has um, an investigation by CPS. We want to be able to serve every family that is reunified. We want to be able to serve every relative. And the way that we can do that is by the community coming together and saying, hey, you know what? I have a building where you can have your resource center. You know what? I have um, a mattress company. You can have mattresses for these families and coming alongside. So that's what I see just growing bigger. What we're doing right now which is people coming alongside and lending their talent and resources to keep families together. I see us being able to, the more people know that this is a need, the more people will react. We have an extremely generous community. People don't want to see kids in foster care unnecessarily, and they don't want their tax dollars going towards that. So they're willing to invest in keeping families together. So we're providing the avenue. And as people invest in um, together for families, we invest into families and the investment goes right back into the community. So Sarah, how can people get in touch with you if they're fired up by what they heard you talk about today, they wanna get in touch with you or learn more about Together for Families? Yeah, absolutely. They can email me at sarah at advochild.org. So Sarah with an H, S-A-R-A-H at advo, A-D-V-O, child, C-H-I-L-D.org, or call me, I'll pick up, or I'll call you right back, 470-814-2109. And um, yeah, I would love to hear from the community. This is 100% Um, a community built by the community. And that's why we called it together for families, because we can't do this work without the community. It really is going to be up to the community, how big um, together for families gets. Mm -hmm. Well, and who knows, maybe one day we'll actually put you out of business and you can go do something. I don't know, sit on the beach. Wouldn't that be a lovely thing if we didn't have to have kids in foster care? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? That would be wonderful. That would be, that would, that would be wonderful if, if, um, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have so many kids in foster care if we equipped our case managers with what they needed to keep children in the home. Yeah, absolutely. And Sarah, I just want to tell you, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your energy. I love your LinkedIn posts. They're always so thoughtful and well-researched, and I really appreciate that. I really appreciate you putting up with the tech problems that we've had today. So thank you for your patience. Is there anything else you want to share before we, I let you go? No, I want to say thank you to you, Anne. It's so funny. The tech is working perfectly right now. Yeah, I'm telling you. It's just one of those days. I don't know. Maybe there's a full moon out there somewhere. I want to...
Well, I am so grateful to the community and I'm so grateful for the families. And I wanna tell every single family who's out there who thinks it's hopeless and they're at risk of losing their children, that there is hope and their families are worth fighting for. And um, the community loves them and we're here to support them and wrap around them. And um, hopefully we can reach every single one of them. I love that, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, appreciate you. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. Be sure and check out the podcast website at communitypossibilities.buzzsprout.com where you will find information about today's guest. You can also send us any feedback or questions you have. Be sure to suggest any community leaders you'd like to hear from or any issues you'd like us to discuss. Thanks so much for joining us.